Good evening, everyone. Let me try to get myself set up here to make sure we're working. Hey, hey. there we go. Well, as Mike said, tonight uh, we're wrapping up Christian Doctrine 1, which takes us to the two natures of Jesus Christ. And I have to confess, as I have with others of these talks, um, I feel completely out of my depth in some sense um, and feeling like the amount of time we have is nowhere near sufficient if you're expecting a full grappling with this issue tonight. What I hope to do is do justice to it, ask, us, ask a few questions that are relevant for us and um, give you a basic understanding of how do we understand this idea of the two natures of Jesus Christ, which on one front can sound quite simple. Oh, he's fully God, fully man. Until you start trying to pull that apart and you realize it's, it's not so simple as it might seem. So a couple of questions we're going to ask ourselves is how can we make sure that we are truly thinking correctly about Jesus when it comes to his person, okay? And what are some ways people have expressed this wrongly or inadequately in the past? And then the third question, which usually everybody deals with, is why should I even care about this? Um, and to be honest, you should because it's vitally, vitally important. So whether you've already expressed faith in Jesus or you are just trying to get an understanding of what Christianity teaches, it's essential that you know who and what you are dealing with. This is why this is so important. To say that one believes in Jesus can be taken in any number of ways based on your understanding of who he is. You can make the statement, will the real Jesus please stand up? Because you need to ask the question, which Jesus are you talking about? And so that question of how can we know, uh, how can we be sure that we're thinking about Jesus correctly and dealing with an accurate portrayal of him uh, as it's found in the Bible? And as we pose that question, I hope you can get a sense of the importance of it and how consequential it is to any kind of relationship with Jesus because you need to know who you're dealing with, and what claims are made about him. And it's also worth noting uh, that we are not arriving at this question tonight in Liddell Hall in Chesington for the first time in history. We're not recreating the wheel here. There have been a handful of key events, uh, meetings of the church, of church leaders in times past, centuries past, uh, to think through and sort out what the Bible teaches about Jesus regarding his person is he deity is he human and if so to what extent and it's the outcome of those meetings that they call church councils um, as they're called that most uh, that are most probably helpful for our purposes and there's a conclusion of one of them in some sense it built in the results of ones that came before that provides us with what i'll call um, boundaries um, like a fence you know, if you have a, a fence in your garden, you mark out the boundaries and kind of within those boundaries, you know that you're safe or your pet is safe or your children are safe. And we're going to draw some lines tonight, some boundary lines to say we're thinking safely about Jesus. That's still, just disclaimer, going to leave all of us in the room with a big question mark and a lot of mystery, even as we draw that out. I want to put this uh, up on the screen. The, these are the boundary lines. And these, uh, this is a, a frame that represents a very, very basic summary of one of these meetings called the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, 
And that happened in 451 AD. And it concluded many things, but four basic things about Jesus that I think if you grasp these tonight, you can know that you are safe in your understanding of who Jesus is. One, he's fully God. Two, fully human. Three, that he has those two natures. Four, existing in one person. Simple statements, but as we put them all together, you're going to realize this is saying quite a bit. Fully God, fully man, those two natures existing in only one purpose. And if we think about Jesus within these parameters, we are safe. We are being consistent with the teachings of the Bible. And if we eliminate or redefine or go beyond any one of those four parameters, we are venturing into error and false teaching. So evidence exists for each of these uh, within the pages of Scripture, which is why they came to these conclusions. When we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, if you remember, we asserted that God exists as one being in three persons, each of which is equally and fully God. If you were here for that, that's what we, that's what we talked about. And so we've already considered evidence that the Bible asserts the divinity of Jesus. So I'm not going to go terribly far down that track. But you might remember these verses. We've said them several times. I think even Sam used them last week when we were talking about the incarnation of Jesus. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So here the Apostle John referring to Jesus as the Word is then identifying him as in the beginning with God. He is God and he made all things. Statements clearly through the rest of Scripture that can only be said about God himself. Yet later on in this passage, there are elements that speak to his humanity. And in a, in a council that came late, uh, later on after this was written, the Council of Nicaea in 325, it rejected a teaching that rejected um, aspects of this, uh, focusing on the humanity of Jesus. And his name um, was Arius of Alexandria. And none of these names I expect you to remember, but I thought you might like to know some of this stuff. So in simple terms, what did this guy Arius of Alexandria teach? Well, in simple terms, he took the term, which you may have heard in the Bible, begotten. The only begotten of the Father. You know, God gave his only begotten Son. And when we think of that word of someone begetting somebody, begetting somebody, it usually has the idea of bearing children, of one producing Another, And so he took this term that is used in reference to Jesus, a term related to having offspring, and concluded that Jesus was somehow brought into existence by the Father. But the term begotten, if you take the rest of Scripture, has an additional meaning not connected with coming into being, but rather highlighting rights and privileges associated with ruling as a king. It's like coronation terms. We're going to have a coronation, right? In May, something I feel like as an American, this is a unique experience I get to have, this cultural experience of seeing a monarch coronated. And if we could use it in those terms, King Charles, that, that ceremony is a way of him having this begetting nature applied to him. 
He's already king, we know, but this, this coronation procedure is he is being enshrouded and this uh, designation of ruler. That's the idea of begetting. The writer of uh, the book of Hebrews applies this type of meaning to Jesus. And he's citing Psalm 2, verse 7, when he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now this is citing Psalm 2, which is a, a, like a, a coronation psalm. And it's saying of the king, who is obviously already born, that he is begotten. He is being set apart for this ruling function. And so for this and other scriptural reasons, the church refuted this idea of begetting from Arianism, making a clear statement that Jesus is of the same nature as the Father. So he's fully God. But, but what about his humanity? And it's interesting, in Crosslands last week, I asked, which one of these do you, you know, we talked about the incarnation, the human nature of Jesus, the divine nature of Jesus. Which of those do you identify with more? Because some of us in the room may have an easier time thinking about Jesus as divine, or some of us may attach more to the, the human nature of Jesus. And if he is human, how should we think about Jesus being human? What does that even mean? Is he human fully like you and I are? And again, the church faced this question in the past. So they dealt with the question, is he fully God? Believe it or not, they had to deal with the question, is he fully human? And in the past, they considered this, the biblical evidence, and guess what conclusion they came to? Yes, he is fully human. That took place at the Council of Constantinople. Why? Well, let's go through some more simple observations. First, Jesus obviously possessed a human body and we've read about and we know how he came into the world as we all do. He didn't come down from the sky like from the mothership or, or anything like that. The scriptures tell us he was born from his mother except the manner in which he was conceived was different. And people interacted with him and knew him to be a human being. He, the scriptures tell us he grew in physical stature he grew in knowledge and developed as we all do. Some verses just to consider. Speaking of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. The end of the passage, verse 52 of chapter 2, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There's all a host of relevant passages we could cite that Jesus is clearly human, that he experienced and felt emotion and mental anguish and physical pain, that it says of him that he had a soul. Jesus said in Matthew 26, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. Wanted companionship. He needed rest. Food. Water. Jesus, as we find him in the pages of scriptures, is clearly human in every way that you and I are, except when it comes to being corrupted by sin. God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so they established this teaching. Now, how did they begin to, to deal with this as it went through history? So he is fully God. He's fully man. 
how do you sort that? How do you have someone who is fully God and fully man? Well, there's some teachings that develop with good intention, I think, of trying to explain this in a way that you deal with Jesus being one and don't have some crazy uh, manifestation of that. So there was a man named Apollinarius. He developed this system called, guess what? Apollinarianism is what was ascribed to him. And he concluded that Jesus cannot have both a human nature and a divine nature because that seems absurd. Now, just pause for a moment because if we went through the doctrine of the Trinity, what did we deal with? How can God be one and three at the same time? And we discovered that's not absurd. It may be incomprehensible for us and there's no point of reference for it, but it doesn't mean it's logically absurd. The same is going to apply tonight. He tried to resolve this tension by essentially saying Jesus possessed a human body, but not really a human soul. That his body was animated by divinity and not by a human soul. Now some have called this, and I don't want to be uh, not serious about this here, but I guarantee you, you will probably remember this. This has been called by some the God with a bod position. All right, that essentially Jesus was like a host, a container, like an avatar, if you will, so to speak, for the divine. That he wasn't really uh, fully God and fully man. It's a God with a bod position. But it fails to align with those passages that we just looked at that make clear Jesus' person was a far more complex unity than what he was trying to capture there. Now, as that frame we had up earlier captures Jesus being fully divine, we found that in Scripture, fully human, and those two natures existing in one person. How does that work? So if what he tried to do doesn't work, well, there were other views that developed, and they were rejected. And they also have some really strange, uh, unique dynamics to them. One of these, uh, in a desire to maintain the distinction now between the two natures, strayed into a position where there are basically like this dual personality thing going on with Jesus. It's called Nestorianism. And this idea was basically this. Here you have a human nature and a divine nature in one person, but what you really have going on within the one body of Jesus is two personalities that are kind of always operating in cooperation, but they're really two. You have a human personality and a divine personality, and it's kind of like, I don't, again, mean to be insensitive in this, but it's like a dual personality. It's like a multiple personality Jesus. So the other envisioned him being like this and, and, and essentially this, again, as you have the God and the man, what it does is it negates the fact of Scripture referring to Jesus as a unity and one person. So we'll capture more of that in just a little bit. So you have Polinarianism, Nestorianism. I like this next one as well. This is how I was per, taught to pronounce this. I'm not quite sure if it's the way all of would have been taught to pronounce this, but it's called Eutychianism. Again, named after a guy, Eutychianus, uh, not Eutychianus, can't remember his full name, but Eutychianism. And he basically come up with this idea 
of the divine nature being blended and mixed together into some kind of unique hybrid with the human nature. So before the incarnation of Jesus, you have human nature and you have divine nature. If you notice on the picture, what do I have? Yellow and blue make what? Green. And it was the idea, well, if we take them both and put them both together, then we have this new thing, this, this kind of mixture of divine and human. However, in this view, is Jesus fully human? And is he fully God? What is he? he he's a weird amalgamation of both, and neither one of them really is there in any meaningful way. His human nature is especially lost in the vastness of the divine nature. Think about it. How, how, if, if we were to make it comparable in size, what would you say the comparable size between a human nature and divine? It's not something you could put into physical quantity, but if, if we were, obviously you would have a vast, vast, infinite measure of who God is compared to a, a human nature. It's a typical illustration of this. If you want to say that Jesus' composition as a person was a mixture... It's likened to putting a few drops of ink in the ocean. I love to go down to the South Coast. It's one of my favorite places to go when I have time. This is not the South Coast. This is just some random picture off the internet that I picked of the ocean because it fit and suited my purposes tonight. But imagine if I went down to the ocean, I came back after I took a bottle of ink and I dropped five drops of ink in the English Channel. And came back and reported to you that I just made a mixture of the Earth's oceans of ink and salt water. And you would say, that is absurd. What would you say? That, you wouldn't go and say, I just dyed the ocean black. You would say, those drops were lost in the vastness of the ocean because they become irrelevant, near meaningless. And so when you think about this, it actually looks more like this. And the humanity of Jesus becomes obscured. Now you may be thinking, I don't know if I like this walk down theological history lane. I'm trying to give you the context of all this because when we come to the end, hopefully we'll land it with why you should care about this. Because if we don't get Jesus right, we don't have anything. We don't have salvation. We don't even have the right meaning of the cross. It's so vitally important that we get this right. So in light of all these deliberations and coming to a clear understanding of the person of Jesus and his natures, what did the church do? They looked at all the biblical evidence and they created the framework. They said somehow he's fully God, fully man, Somehow, there's two natures existing in one person. The person of Jesus Christ, those things come together in one person forever with the two natures not being mixed and not having multiple personalities, the two natures not being diminished in any way. He's fully God, fully human. It clearly sets out those boundaries for us, having clear thinking about who Jesus is. But it also means that if we come back, let's see if I can do this here without messing things up too much entirely. If we come back to this, even if it sets us with some very clear boundaries to work with, we are also left to grapple with an incredible mystery that is beyond our comprehension. 
You know if you have any concept of Jesus within that box, fully God, fully man, two natures, one person, you're safe. But if we go back and say, how is this all going to work? You are left to grapple with an incredible mystery beyond our comprehension. If you find your head through this talk, and if you've been working through the Crossland's material, some of you beginning to swim with questions and difficulties, and it hurts, you're probably dealing with the right doctrine of the two natures of Jesus. If you can tick it off and say, yep, simple, I think you may be need to go back to the drawing board a little bit because we will never be able to fully comprehend the person of Jesus. There are no other reference points for him just like there isn't with the Trinity. We had the doctrine of the Trinity, right? We had three persons in one being and now within the doctrine of the Trinity we have one of them who is fully God, fully man, forever united those two natures into one person. It's a huge mystery. We'll never be able to fully comprehend the person of Christ. But there are some things for us to keep in mind tonight. Just as we kind of begin steering this towards some ways to grapple with this and why it's so important. First, God the Son, as we see it on this, did not cease being God nor give up any of his attributes as God at the incarnation. He was still fully God. Mike read this passage earlier. I'm going to reference it again. We've referenced it several times in our, in our talks of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And I want you to listen to this with the idea more of humanity being added to divinity as opposed to a loss of divinity to become human. When it says of Jesus, he was being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing. In some translations of the Bible, it says he emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And some have taken that to mean somehow Jesus emptied himself and stopped using some of his divine attributes. And if you are here for what we know about God and his attributes, can God change in his attributes? No. God can't change in his attributes. And in this passage, the idea of Jesus emptying himself was not that he was um, altering his composition in any way. Because remember, this is a, a passage that was meant to exhort us to look at Jesus and say, go and do likewise. So it's not encouraging us to somehow empty ourselves, changing our inward composition. But rather, as this version of the Bible translates it, he made himself Nothing. It was a metaphor of saying that he took the form of a servant. And notice the language there, taking the very nature of a servant. So what did he say? He was equal with God and he took the very nature of a servant also being made in human likeness. It's almost like in this one set of verses you're getting all the dynamics of who Jesus is in one snapshot. So, God the Son did not cease being God uh, in a, as, he, as he was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, in light of these two natures, and this is where it starts to get mind-bending and mind-blowing. I was thinking of the movie, if you know if anybody's seen the movie Inception, 
uh, where there's dreams within dreams and you're trying to figure out what's happening, you know, and all these. There, there's, a, there's an element of when you start thinking about, we happen, happen with the Trinity, you start thinking about the Trinity and your mind just goes, I, I, can't, I can't grasp this. And if you really sit and ponder the person of Jesus Christ and what it means that he's fully God and fully man, if you really try to grapple with that, you're going to have those moments where your brain just goes, I, I can't even begin to grasp how amazing this is. So in light of his two natures, certain things can be said of one, but not the other. Certain things can be said of his human nature that cannot be said of his divine nature and vice versa. And I want to take you to a passage of scripture that captures this so amazingly, I think, in the form of a narrative. It's not making theological statements. It's just describing an incident with Jesus. Matthew chapter 8, when he and his disciples were crossing the sea in the boat and the storm comes. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 says, Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, You have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now notice, this passage tells us Jesus is tired. He's weary. He's asleep in the back of the boat. But then as they are overwhelmed by the storm, they wake him and he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. Now listen, God doesn't sleep. And human beings cannot control weather. But Jesus Christ can. Both of those things. And in his humanity, he's weary and tired and can sleep. And in his divinity, even the wind and the waves obey him. So third, not only what can be said of one can be said of the other. I'm sorry, going to my next point there. In light, certain things can be said of one but not the other. Here, the next thing you need to see last is whatever either nature does is ascribed to the one person of Jesus Christ. Mind-blowing, I know. Let's just go through those really quick. God did not cease being God. Two, in light of, a certain nature, of his two natures, certain things can be said of one but not the other. Third, Whatever either nature does is ascribed to the entire person of Jesus. Let's give you an example of this. So when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I have verses 3 through 4, but I'll, I'll include verses 1 through 2 as I read it. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now in saying that Christ died for our sins, he is speaking of the one person, Jesus Christ. 
his divinity and his humanity united together in the one person of Jesus. Those two not being confused, they're completely distinguished, not diminished, but they are uniquely united in the person of Jesus Christ. So that when it says Jesus died, well, we know only humanity can die, right? It was that human side of Jesus that died, but it says of him, Jesus Christ died. The divine nature could not die, but somehow shared in the experience of that death via the unity with the human nature of Jesus. Which leads us to why this matters. By uniting the human nature, the divine nature with the human nature, God made a way for his wrath against the sin of humanity to be borne by one sinless substitute. Because Jesus' death was not simply the death of a man. It was the death of the one who was uniquely, fully God, fully man, two natures, one person. That his death, his life, took on a completely different scope and value. That the unity of Jesus' divinity and his humanity enabled him to be a sinless substitute. His sinlessness was guaranteed because of that unity. And because of that unity, that humanity, he could also die for the sins of the world. Not just one for one. Not just one substitute for one. How could it be that one man, how could it be that that one death in his humanity could cover the sins of all of us in this room, of all people who are on the earth right now, and whoever have been and whoever will be? How is that possible? Because he's not just a man. He is fully a man, but he's also fully God. Fully God, fully man. Those two natures in one person. Salvation is of the Lord. In this way, God was able to provide a sinless substitute for you and for me. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. I know this was a bit of a heavy one and a a big one for us to try to grasp. But when we think about when the scripture says there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved, I hope you get a sense of now why that's the case. How unique and absolutely glorious the person of Jesus Christ is and how only he bridges that gap between us and God in order for us to be restored to a relationship with him. So if you want to embrace the Jesus of the Bible, get comfortable with mystery. Get comfortable with the fact that you will never fully comprehend him. The only way to explain Jesus is those four things. Fully God, fully human, two distinct natures united in one person forever. Is it impossible to fully grasp? Likely. Is it essential and Christian, uh, foundational Christian doctrine? Absolutely. We have to grasp this. This is the real Jesus that we need to present to people. This is the Jesus that we worship. And the mystery of him and the glory of him, I hope, compels us to realize how wonderful, glorious he is and compels us to bow uh, before him in worship and in humility. He's our brother. He's our King. He's our God. Let's pray.
Again, Father, I confess that um, delivering this talk tonight was from a position of, of just feeling so inadequate. And I suppose, Father, that is a good place for each of us to be when we approach the person of Jesus. To come with a sense of trembling and humility and a confession that we will never fully grasp or comprehend him. Which should lead us to that sense that he is above us and beyond us, that we would expect no other way to be able to deal with the idea of God becoming man. To think that we could sort that in our finite minds. Lord, keep us from, I guess, intellectual arrogance within ourselves to think that we could. We thank you, Lord Jesus, as we think about who you are and the unique way in which you have come into this world. Fully God, fully human, two natures, one person, uniquely positioned to be our Savior, to be our Lord, to be the mediator between God and man, the one who restores us to relationship, the only one. When we fully grasp that, Lord, I pray that where there may be mystery and difficulty and sometimes misunderstanding, I pray, Lord, that we would continue to struggle to operate within that framework that your church over the centuries has said, as hard as it is, this is the true picture of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to continue to strive, help us to continue to learn, and in so doing, learn to love you and worship you as we learn to grapple with that mystery of your greatness, of who you really are. But Lord, tonight, if we leave with no other thought on our minds of all these different positions and things throughout history, what this means for us is that we have a Savior. What this means for us is that we have a way to be forgiven and we have a way to be free. And so we thank you for that this night and we bow before you in Jesus' name. Amen.